invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'll read verses 12 through 24. Remember as I read that this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant Word written for you and for me this morning. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins." And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead." For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Beloved, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Please be seated. Before we consider this text together, would you pray with me and ask the Lord's help that we might understand it rightly. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we confess that this is Your Word that it is breathed out by the very power of the Spirit of Christ risen from the dead. We thank You that it is useful for teaching and correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord, we thank You that in Christ we have the Spirit who illumines our hearts, who leads us in paths of righteousness, who from one degree of glory to the next, is transforming us to be like the image of our Savior. We thank You indeed that You have separated our sin from us as far as the East is from the West. And so we pray that as we consider Your Word this morning together on this happy occasion, that Christ Himself would minister to our hearts from the heavenly places, that we would meet with Him, that we would know of His presence with us as we gather with brothers and sisters in the Lord. Cause Your Word to have its way with us. Enable us to behold wonderful things in it, that we might be changed, that we might be stirred up to worship You with great joy until the day of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Let me say what a wonderful joy it is for me to be with you. It's always a joy to come to Texas from Philadelphia, but it's a particular joy to come to McKinney on this happy occasion. Your previous pastor was the adept moderator of the presbytery uh, where my membership was when I was serving as an assistant pastor at a little church called Providence PCA down in Dallas. And I appreciated his ministry very much for years. And now your new pastor is a dear friend of mine. I could not be more thrilled that you've called him to be your minister and could not be more happy that he has accepted that call. I bring you greetings from Westminster Theological Seminary up there in Philadelphia. And as I considered what to preach uh, this morning, I thought it might be helpful if we considered together what, above all, should fuel the Christian life. What, above all, we could also add, should fuel a pastor's ministry. Especially in the increasingly secular day and age in which we live. Consider a book published in 2011 with the following title, The Atheist's Guide to Reality. The subtitle is Enjoying Life Without Illusions. This book was written by a man named Alexander Rosenberg. He is the head of the philosophy department at Duke University. He is a militant atheist who writes not only to present his atheism, but what's unique about this book is he writes to work out the worldview implications of his naturalistic worldview of his atheism. He wants to say, everything that's going on in the world is nothing more than molecules in motion. As one fellow atheist put it, all human beings are, are moist robots. I wonder if you feel like a moist robot this morning. Surely not this morning. He's asking, well, if all we are are molecules in motion, what what follows from this? What, what are the implications for how we should view life? And listen to what he says on the opening pages. Is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is? Does prayer work? Of course not. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding? What happens when we die? Everything pretty much goes on as before, except us. What's the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Is abortion, euthanasia, suicide, paying taxes, foreign aid, or anything else you don't like forbidden, permissible, or sometimes obligatory? Anything goes. Does history have any meaning or purpose? It is full of sound and fury, but signifies nothing. Does the human past have any lessons for our future? Fewer and fewer, he writes, if it ever had any to begin with. Now, amusingly, Rosenberg goes on to contradict his purposeless worldview, I would argue, by sitting down to write such a purposeful book to convince you of his atheism. <laughs> but it's helpful, isn't it? to trace out the consequences of unbelief, to see where it leads, to trace out the stubborn pitfalls and problems that ensue. And I say, if an atheist is willing to do it himself, then, then all the better. 
But even among Christians, it is useful to trace out the consequences of unbelief as a way of highlighting the truthfulness of the Word of God. This is something of what Paul is doing in our text this morning for the church in Corinth, isn't it? He's, he's taking a problem that's arisen in the church and he's working out the trail of misguided unbelief and he wants to show them where it leads. Not for the sake of convincing them of this position, of course, but, but in order to bend them back to the Gospel. Notice in verse 12, he tells us what exactly he's dealing with. Evidently in the church there were some who were denying the possibility of a bodily resurrection. Uh, they certainly confessed the resurrection of Christ. You see early on in chapter 15 he describes the gospel that he has preached to them. And what is the gospel? It is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He made appearances to many people. This is the gospel that they had received. This is the gospel that they had believed. And yet, some in the church were denying a general resurrection on the last day. That is, the resurrection of the believer when Christ comes again. The text hints that some perhaps thought that death was simply the end of one's existence. Just annihilationism, pure and simple. They were embracing a kind of anything-goes attitude in the wake of that. Much like Rosenberg's moral relativism. Notice later on in verse 32, Paul says that if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now more likely, some of them at First Presbyterian Church at Corinth believe that death marked only the end of the body's existence but that the soul, the immaterial dimension of who we are, goes on and is released from a kind of prison house of the body, like a bird flying finally from its cage. That what mattered was not a bodily resurrection, but simply an immaterial resurrection, maybe even a, a metaphorical resurrection. And we hear similar things today, don't we, in our own day. Uh, that the bodily resurrection doesn't really matter. It's, it's the Spirit of Christ that matters. It's, it's His ethical teaching that matters. Not whether He rose again on the third day. Well, whatever the problems Paul was facing at the church, it gave him the chance to say something critical to the Corinthians. Something critical that the Holy Spirit would have us know. Uh, something critical, I think, for for pastoral ministry. And that is this. That on the question of the truthfulness of the bodily resurrection of Christ hangs either all of the Christian's hope or else all of the Christian's despair. On the question of the truthfulness of the bodily resurrection of Christ hangs either all of the Christian's hope or else all of the Christian's despair. Now, putting it this way doesn't merely mean that the Gospel is at stake when it comes to the resurrection of Christ, though true as that is. What we're saying here is that it is from the resurrected Christ comes every genuine joy and comfort and hope that ought to permeate your life. Every confidence in sorrow 
such that if Jesus were not raised from the dead, if he were not raised to reign now and return, then the Christian life and the pastor's ministry would be one of such utter vanity and despair. It would produce a life of more profound hopelessness than even Alex Rosenberg can imagine. Paul takes us into this dark prospect so that we would see the light and the joy and the hope that flows from the Christ who is risen. And so it is in verses 12 to 19, he walks through a series of consequences, hypothetical consequences if Christ were not raised. Notice he says in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. This serves as a kind of uh, logical principle upon which his argument is going to turn. It's, It's like setting before the people the cliff of despair. And he wants to push us to the edge of that cliff and force us to look down. And so with our toes teetering on the edge of that cliff, he gives us the first consequence. Were it true that Christ is not raised? Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, he says, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Well, there you go. This word vanity connotes the idea of emptiness and groundlessness. Paul is saying if the tomb is not empty, then your faith is. The idea here is that if Christ is not raised, then faith would have no object. It would have nothing to lay hold of. Now the idea that faith should have any object at all may be new to many today. Uh, when we hear the word faith used in ordinary speech, we're simply encouraged to have faith. Have faith. Where that generally means have, a, have an optimistic outlook on life. Have a, have a well-intentioned feeling that things are going to work out in the end. That's, that's the message from so many uh, Disney movies, isn't it? You have it within yourself. Have faith. If faith has any object, it's faith in yourself, isn't it? But true faith, biblical faith, saving faith, is not like that at all. Biblical faith is rooted in the knowledge of the Word of God. In the knowledge of the Gospel in particular as it's revealed on the pages of Scripture. True and saving faith seizes upon the promises of God with an assured trust in the kind of God who makes those promises. Saving faith specifically receives and rests in Christ alone as He is offered in the Gospel. This is what we're celebrating this year, 500 years after the Reformation. Once we see that our faith has an object, and that object is Jesus Christ, crucified and and now raised in life-giving power, we can see that without the resurrection of Christ, the the minister has nothing to preach. And our faith has nothing to believe. Faith in a powerless object is a powerless faith. But, if Christ is raised from the dead, then even the weakest faith that lays hold upon Him 
lays hold upon Christ just as much as the strongest believer. One of the great Puritans, Richard Sibbs, said that a weak hand can receive a rich jewel. A weak hand can still receive a rich jewel. If that's you this morning and you feel like your faith is weak, of course the Word of God wants to confront you and encourage you in your faith. The Spirit of God will be at work in you as you receive and rest in the promises of God. But, but from one angle, if your faith is weak, you have the same strong Christ as the most confident Christian. But if you take away that jewel, if you take away Christ, then even the most sincere faith, even the strongest hand, clings to nothing. Paul works out a second consequence of denying the resurrection of Christ in verse 15. He says the apostles would be guilty of a deliberate falsehood. If Christ be not raised, he says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. If it's all a lie, then the apostles are the agents of a most grievous deception. We know that the end of Matthew's Gospel tells us that a story was circulated in the wake of the resurrection that the disciples had stolen the body. This was the fake news story that was generated by the authorities. And it was debunked by all the eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. It was debunked by the bold testimony of the disciples in the wake of Pentecost. But Paul is saying, look, if Christ be not raised, we are not only lying, but perhaps he's saying something stronger, that they're making God out to be a liar. Because after all, it was God who had commissioned the apostles to proclaim the name of Christ to testify to that which is not the case if Christ be not raised. A third consequence comes in in verse 17. Not only is faith empty and vain, it is futile. It is fruitless. It is of no saving benefit. If Christ be not raised, faith is not only evacuated of its substance, but Paul puts it starkly in the next clause, you are still in your sins. Now what does this mean? Well, if we think back to the ministry of Christ, we know that He bore our sin throughout His earthly pilgrimage. He experienced the weakness of this fallen world and the curse of the law, all without sin, throughout His years as a man walking this earth. But it was especially at the cross when the wrath of God, the curse of the law, fell upon Him for sin that was not His own. And this is vital to our salvation because if sinners were to be saved, the death that is the consequence for sin had to be destroyed from the inside, as it were. But it is also true that from the inside, Death had to be destroyed. If sinners are to be freed from slavery to sin and a rightful fear of death, the death that devours had to be swallowed up in life. The weeping night of the cross had to give way to the joy of the morning. Uh, Paul writes elsewhere in Romans 4, verse 25, that this Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, but raised to life for our justification. 
His vindication from the dead is our vindication as we lay hold on Him. So it is that the resurrection of Christ on the third day is the invasion of the joy and power of eternal life in His glorified flesh. The resurrection is the great reversal of the Father's verdict of condemnation upon His Son. It marks the end of His probationary period and the vindication of the Son of God in holiness and righteousness. It is the bursting forth of the beloved Son of God in life-giving power for all who would believe. Faith, saving faith, wrought in the heart of the sinner supernaturally by the Holy Spirit is a laying hold of this Christ personally, living, reigning, saving faith invisibly lays hold upon Him and the power of life that He now embodies. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, His resurrection life is imparted to your heart by faith alone. Without the resurrection, therefore, Paul is saying that the sting of sin and the condemning power of the law and the reign of death reign over each one of us. In verse 18, he goes on to a fourth consequence. He says that if Christ be not raised, then even the fellow Christians whom they have laid in the grave would be irretrievably lost. They would have no advocate before the bar of divine justice. No no recourse before the just accusations of the evil one. And if this weren't bad enough, verse 19 gives us the final blow. He says, were Christ not raised, not only the future is lost, but the present as well. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, we might ask ourselves at this point, has Paul gone a little bit too far here? Uh, has he become something of a, of a Debbie Downer? Uh, might the well-meaning atheist object and say, Paul, you're going a little too far here. You, you may have believed an illusion in this life, but cheer up, it, it was a useful illusion. It enabled you to stay out of trouble. It enabled you to live well, to cope with the trials of life. How do you respond to that? Well, Scripture tells us that this kind of objection frankly fails to capture the essence of the Christian life. All of a Christian's hope, all of a Christian's confidence, all of a Christian's strength and sorrow flows from the resurrected Christ. Yes, as He is the Lord of all, as He is sovereign over your circumstances, but especially as He is the preview of the consummate glory to come. He is the preview of what God is doing in His people's lives as the redeemed, being conformed to the image of the Redeemer. He is the preview of the glorious good work that God will complete in all of those who lay hold on Christ. So to adapt a line from a famous hymn, we could say that 
that our strength for today flows from the bright hope we have for tomorrow. The hope of a glorious renewal of all things by our risen King. Isn't it true that the Christian, by faith, sings the songs of a future marriage feast? Isn't it true that the Christian is led by a, by a Spirit who is Himself the deposit and down payment of our glorious and unfading, imperishable inheritance kept in heaven for us? Is it not true that as we gather together as brothers and sisters each Sunday morning on the Lord's Day, we are gathering in anticipation of a final Sabbath rest, a time when our wilderness pilgrimage will be completed, a time when our persevering good works in the face of opposition and indwelling sin will be over, and we will rest in the rest of God forever and ever in a new heaven and a new earth. No, no, you take away a Christian's future and you take away a Christian's present as well. Now to be sure, that future hope is possessed today in the midst of trouble and trial and circumstances we didn't expect and, and turns of events and tragedies and sinful decisions. A few years ago, my wife and I had planned to take our young boys to the museums in Washington, D.C. There are, in fact, some benefits to living in the Northeast. And uh, we went down to D.C. to go to the museums. Our, our older two boys were quite young. We had them in the stroller. And within 24 hours, uh, we were absolutely exhausted. Uh, we came home with a little dent in our minivan. I mean, it was a classic trip, let me tell you. We came around the east side of the Capitol building, and the straightest line to our car, which was the only line we were going to take, uh, was in front of the U.S. Supreme Court building. And on that particular day, uh, inside, uh, there was a, a debate going on whether, whether the government should repeal the Defense of Marriage Act, constitutionally defining marriage in certain respects between a man and a woman. And, and there we were, my wife and I, uh, nudging our double-wide jogging stroller with our two boys uh, through a sea of, of protesters and, and rainbow flags and, and opposition to so much of what I would hold dear. Now, what are we to do when surrounded by those who would reject the gospel? What's a pastor to do today in a world that seems to be growing more and more secular-minded and self-oriented and confused about natures, about sexuality and gender and all the rest? So much to say, so much biblical wisdom to try to probe, isn't there? But, but one thing we can say is what Paul tells Timothy as he equips him for gospel ministry. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. But the Word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. 
We are willing to lay down our lives that, that those who oppose Christ may know Him in all of His life-giving power, may know the power of forgiven sin, freedom from the dominion of sin, of the hope of glory. Well, I wonder if we could step outside of ourselves on a given week, if, if, we, could, if we could just watch ourselves, if you could get out of yourself and see how you go about your own day, how you, how you deal with the trials of life, how you deal with pain, how you confront anxieties, and how you speak to others, how, how you treat your spouse or your children or those with whom you work. I wonder if you could look at your life and ask yourself, is it prefaced by the thought, if Christ has not been raised? Is, is that what's stamped over the banner of your life, if Christ has not been raised? Or, by the grace of God, do you remember that you've been crucified with Christ to this world, to all of its habits and priorities and desires, so that your life and your lips may declare what Paul declares in verse 20? When he turns the corner and he says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. And so it's here that all of the negative consequences that he's listed give way to the glorious consequences of the historical fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. We've already mentioned a number of the positive consequences indirectly. We've already mentioned that Christ as raised from the dead is the preview of the Christian's final hope. But notice in verse 20, Paul says something more. He calls Christ the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. This harks back to the Old Testament. Remember under the law of Moses, Moses required the first sheaf of the grain harvest to be given to the priest. The first fruits of the harvest to be the, the kind of pledge and guarantee that all of the harvest belonged to the Lord. We do this today when we, when we make tithes and offerings. When we give the best of what we have, of our time, of our resources, to the Lord. And, and we're saying, in effect, God, you, you own it all. And this first fruit is the, is the token, the pledge of, of all the rest that belongs to you. That I am to deploy for the glory of your name and the various callings that you've given me. Well, so too, when, when Paul calls Christ the first fruits, a similar idea is here. Paul is saying that the resurrection of Christ is organically related to the final resurrection of all of His people. The bodily resurrection of Christ is the pledge of the future resurrection of all those who are united to Him by faith. The great old Princeton theologian Charles Hodge says, that of the great harvest of glorified bodies which our earth is to yield, Christ is the first fruits. You see the same Son into whose kingdom you have been transferred out of darkness. The same Son who, who by His Word and Spirit is pulling you ever nearer to your heavenly home as His resurrection power renews your heart day by day reminds you of who you are in Christ, even as your outer man, even as your 
physical flesh is wasting away and decaying. One day this Christ will pull your transformed body from the dust of the ground. This is the pledge of His resurrection. This is the promise and power of His resurrection life at work in you. And Paul goes on to say that this is the pattern of all human history. Notice verse 21 and 22. One man acting on behalf of many. This is the way that it began in the garden. One man acting on behalf of many. So too with Christ. Paul calls Him elsewhere the second Adam. The last Adam. The great representative of all those who would trust in Him. Paul makes it clear in verse 23, as we must today, that in order for Christ's resurrection to be the preview of your own, you must be joined to Christ. You must belong to Him by faith. You must receive and rest in Him with with God-given saving faith that has Him as your object. And would that every one of us here be joined to Him today. What a great day it would be if, if as you receive a new shepherd in this church that you would be joined, maybe for the first time, to the great shepherd of shepherds, to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Lord of His flock today. Verse 24 tells us something critical in this regard. Paul says that a day is coming when every mouth will be shut and every molecule that is in motion against the Lord and against His Christ will be visibly subdued and subordinated to the kingdom and the power and the glory of God. Christian, you can take heart this morning because your whole life is bookended by resurrection. Jordan, your ministry is bookended by resurrection. Christ's on the third day and your own on the last day. And every day in between is fueled by Christ's own resurrection power at work in you. And in the process, in Paul's logic, every previously devastating thought that he has suggested is unraveled and is reversed. Since Christ has been raised, your faith is not in vain. You have a steadfast anchor in the Lord Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. The preaching of the Word of God is able to build up God's people in holiness and in faith unto salvation. That the apostolic witness and the inspired and inerrant Word is a true testimony to God and His Gospel. Because Christ has been raised, faith avails much. And the works of a true and lively faith will lead to eternal life. Because Christ has been raised, those beloved saints who have been laid in the ground, those who are asleep in Jesus, as our forefathers in the faith would say, their souls having passed immediately into the presence of Christ, will at His return awake to the dawn of resurrection life in glorified flesh. And because Christ has been raised, sinners who laid hold on Christ, who walk by faith, who suffer with Him that they might be glorified with Him, who endure all things for the sake of the glory of God, are those 
of whom the world is not worthy. I want to ask you in closing, is the resurrection of Christ your guide to reality? Does it enable you to live life without sinful illusion, but with glorious gospel hope in the power of God and in the gospel of His Son? All reality belongs to Jesus, friends. And all He did and all He bare, He gives us as our own to share. And hope and joy and peace begin, for Christ has won and man shall win. Let us pray. Father, who has made us sufficient for these things? Only You, our eternal God. The One who has loved us in such a way that You gave up Your own Son on the cross as He bore our sins in His body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that we might be forever with You. We pray Your blessing upon us as we meditate, reflect, and live out this Word from Your Word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.